Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening and welcome everybody to tonight's program at the Commonwealth Club. My name is Saran Yitbarak. I'm the CEO and founder of Code Newbie, and I'm pleased to be your moderator for tonight's conversation. Joining us is Clive Thompson. <laughs> a columnist for Wired, longtime tech contributor to the New York Times Magazine, and author of the new book, Coders, which hopefully you've heard of by now, The Making of a New Tribe and the Remaking of the World. Yes, yes, very nice book, very nice cover. A recipient of the Knight Science Journalism Fellowship at MIT. Very fancy. Clive has spent the majority of his journalistic career reporting on technology in a self-described computer geek from way back. <laughs> Coders is a unique look into the culture of a seemingly exclusive industry. He talks about the good and the bad, how coding has opened new avenues of opportunity to different groups of people, and also how the field has shut out and discouraged the participation of others. We are very grateful to have him here tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Clive Thompson to the Commonwealth Club. Thank you. There you go. Thank you. Can I put the book right here? Yeah. Is that okay? Yeah. As you can see, I have read the book. <laughs> I have taken lots of notes, and I'm very excited about it. I'm going to put this yeah, right there. I showed up, and I was there. like, Saran, man, you have done your homework. <laughs> right? like, yes, I have. So one of the things that I love about this book is that you cover a lot of stuff. You cover gender, you cover race, yeah. you cover AI, you cover the history. I feel like you went through every single decade and had some type of historical perspective on yeah. everything from the beginning of computers. And so I want to know, how did the research begin for you? What was the starting point? In a weird way, the research probably began like uh, 40 years ago when um, Commodore 64s came out and you could plug them into your TV because like, uh, that was, I'm 50 years old, so that was literally my, my generation uh, uh, of introduction to coding was this moment when it was like, you know, it became a mass thing, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so w when I was a kid, I was keenly aware that um, these were crazy and interesting devices that compelled me. They gave you this enormous feeling of creativity uh, and control, which you don't get much when you're 12 years old. Um, and I probably would have done this for a living uh, if my mother hadn't said uh, to my father, uh, we cannot have a computer inside the house because he'll just play video games and drop out of school. Were they, uh, were they right? Is that what uh, they were not, not, not entirely wrong. Given, I used to vanish into arcades, you know, for like you know days at a time. So, um, so, so I, but I put it in my pocket, right? And um, and I went off to become a writer. But when I graduated, I, I just remained fascinated by you know what computers meant for society, and I started writing about it. And over and over again, I would run into these you know really interesting developers who were building stuff, beginning like in the '90s with web stuff and carrying on, mm -hmm. uh, and then. And sort of what became clear over time was that the average person really had no idea how software comes to be. Like, it's just this absolute mystery. Mm -hmm. They don't know. It's a know. black box. It's a black box. Yeah. They don't know who's doing it. They don't know why mm -hmm. those people get interested in it. I knew enough about the allure of why that was narcotic and interesting because of my own experience and having talked to all these people that I, I really wanted to put that together and, 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 and sort of show people um, who are the folks that are behind all these transformations of society? Mm -hmm. So when you decided that you wanted to share this information with people, where did you begin? You kind of had to begin, infiltrate yeah. Yeah. Yeah, these coding communities. <laughs> where, did, where did you start? And once I, I, start, I, I started 
you know, the, the, the low hanging fruit was people that I knew. So people that I'd talked to before, you know, like, uh, um, Bram Cohen, you know, the creator of BitTorrent, right? You know, I had, um, years ago, I'd, I'd profiled him for Wired. So I sort of did, you know, what they often call uh, anthropologists or sociolo- sociologists would call it a snowball, st- uh, um, survey where you, you, st- Start with one person. Who else do you think I should talk to? And then you just keep on going and going and going, right? Mm -hmm. So some of it was that. But also, I really wanted to, you know, get a soup to nuts view, which to say from the people who are kind of at the in in these catalytic roles, like at the very large tech companies, like the people building AIs. Uh, for Google, you know, people who had put together Facebook's newsfeed, these, you know, Twitter, these very large companies, all the way down to, you know, the, the, you know, the guy slinging JavaScript for your local bank, mm-hmm. right? Because I really wanted to get a sense that there was this ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So, I, uh, so I worked hard at, at trying to get a, a very wide view of it. Some people, you know, were very happy to talk. Others, like Mark Zuckerberg, were not particularly interested <laughs> in talking. Uh, um, you know, I, I actually, I, I said to Facebook, I said, look, you know, um, uh, I'd love to chat with him. And truthfully, given that most of the time people interview him, they want to talk about stock valuations or whatnot. I said, I'm the last person on the planet who actually wants to talk to him about coding, right? You know, he's going to go to his grave, never being asked about that. Um, <laughs> it, it did not move them. Okay. <laughs> well, what's interesting is that you didn't just study coding. You code a little bit yourself. Yeah, that's right. You? Yeah. Actually, show of hands in the room. How many people have coded before? Show of hands. Okay, there okay, we go. There you go. Yeah, so yeah, you're, yeah, you're amongst yeah. your people. Yeah, Tell totally. us a little bit about that. Well, okay. So like I said, I did this when I was a kid. I dropped it, you know, for my 20s and, and 30s. And then so my 40s, I decided, you know, I wanted to learn more about it and do more of it because of me talking to people. I also wanted to sort of know some of the more modern languages. I mean, like I did Fortran on punch cards, right, which is not exactly contemporary. So um, uh, very weird uh, high school curriculum in 1980s at Toronto. <laughs> so, um, so I was learning, you know, JavaScript and Python and whatnot. Not. And uh, and I and I quickly set about discovering that you know it was it was actually more fun than writing you know by a country mile. Um, I used to, I used to I, I would procrastinate on writing my book by sitting around writing weird little tools for myself um, because you know when you're writing you know. Writing has no proof of success. Mm. You know, like uh, I write a column for Wired. Um, was it a good column? You know, did it work? I don't know. You know that's up to you guys. It's, it's a completely subjective thing. Whereas when I would write some little tool for myself, um, you know, once it was working, it was just working. And it had this crisp finality to it this, that, that, that you know, no one could come to me and say, yeah, that weird tool is not working. It's working. I don't have to argue about it. So that, that was sort of pleasant and fun. And I, I found that more fun than writing. I still sort of do. Uh, I, I was telling Sron earlier that uh, earlier this week, I, um, I found myself doing that neurotic thing that authors do where you sit at your Amazon page, you know, refreshing it over and over again, to <laughs> see if the, if the sales rank has gone up. And I thought, you know, this is completely unhealthy. So, uh, so let's automate it. Uh, so I wrote a little scraper uh, that, goes in and grabs the text I'm looking for and formats it and, and texts it to me. Uh, and, and, uh, <laughs> Much and, healthier. And I thought originally I should have this fire, you know, every seven minutes uh, all day long. Um, <laughs> scaled that back to four times a day. Uh, um, and so uh, now I, I sort of, um, it, it's like cognitive behavioral therapy through code, right? You know, I, while I was writing it, I was aware, wow, I'm out of my mind. I'm out of my mind. Uh, but now I don't have to think about it. You know, um, that was more fun than anything else I've done this week, actually. 
Which Except is, for this. Of, uh, um. of course, of course. I, I know you meant that, yeah. Um, what's interesting is that when you write, you get to share that with tons of people, millions of people, right? But when you're That's coding true. these little things, yeah, yeah. no one really gets to see it. Did that factor in at all? No, no, well, in a way, no, because you know, I, I wouldn't want anyone to look at this code. It's horrible. Uh, uh, I wouldn't want anyone else to rely on it. Um, uh, it I, think, I think there is one sense in which writing is like, is like the pleasures of, of software deployment that, that, that the people I talk to would say, which is that there is this, there is this joy in making something public, right? Uh, I mean, I enjoy writing when it gets out there in the sense that there's this thing going around in the world I'm getting reactions from. And over and over again, I would hear the same type of thing from developers. That one of the things that was enormously delightful was this sense that they were doing something in one corner of the world that would sort of be used everywhere, you know, um, uh, there's a story in, in the book where I was I ran into um, I was I was at Instagram talking to Ryan Olson, one of the developers uh, uh, f- who did stories. So like Instagram basically rolled out this this thing. It was you know sort of a direct copy of Snapchat, um, but they did a good job. And he had just finished like the sort of death march of like you know f- five weeks of not sleeping. And so I you know I was interviewing him. He was all bleary, but he said there was you know something I heard often. There was this pleasure of like he'd get on the subway and he'd see someone pull out their phone and, you know, use stories. And there was something amazing to him about the scale of being able to do something in one place and then just see it everywhere. Mm -hmm. And that's a little bit like writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in the book, you talk about this idea of a 10x engineer, which is kind of a common topic, right? This idea of a person who is just such a superstar who can do the work of 10 other engineers. Mm -hmm. But you also briefly mention a 1x engineer. (laughs) And the idea of a 1x engineer is someone who's maybe not really the superstar. Um, And the example you gave was David Crowley, who created Dodgeball, who then created Foursquare. And it was interesting because that story about Dodgeball and the code was so terrible. He showed it to these Google engineers and the engineers validated that it was terrible. Um, but he created Foursquare. Yep. Yeah. 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 So Dennis Crowley, uh, um, uh, amazing story. Um, uh, sort of a friend of mine. I met him back in the dodgeball days. So I called him up because he had once said to me, he said, like, you know, I'm the worst programmer I've ever met. Uh, and I was like, okay, I need to get that story into the book. And it's true. Like he, he had tried, he tried to study computer science, um, uh, could not Path even the first course uh, um, would try and teach himself stuff. Uh, he could not get. He goes, I could not get any code to compile. Um, tried to get into MIT. Um, didn't have the chops to get into MIT. Finally, um, you sort of just you know for, brute forced his way into learning a little bit of ASP because he had a vision. Right, he had this. He was a guy who liked going out in New York in nightlife. He liked going to bars. He liked finding out where his friends were. Uh, and he had this idea of like, you know, wouldn't it be fun to know where everyone else was? You know, in this kind of, um, he described it as like, you know, the, uh, the, the Marauder's Map from uh, a Harry Potter, mm-hmm. right? You know? And so, you know, he had this cultural thrill that he wanted to create. And so he was just willing to bash his way through and create whatever janky scripts were necessary to make it work. And, and, and the thing that was so valuable, I think, about what he did and what he told me was that, you know, his actual coding skills were terrible, but he had something that was perhaps even more valuable, which mm-hmm. is he had an interesting thing that he wanted to make happen that was valuable to a lot of other people and brought a lot of joy into people's lives, mm-hmm. right? You know, and so, you know, he, he, they were bought by Google and, uh, and Google brought them in and they do the code review and they were like, Wow, look what we bought here, you know, uh, um, a thousand lines of insane PHP. Um, but, you know, it, it, they, so they were kind of aware that, wow, this is nuts. But they also, they had respect for it, you know, because they were like, sure, we've got, you know, a company full of like 10x engineers. Um, but, 
you know, but what's valuable is knowing something, uh, you know, solving a problem or creating an opportunity or a new experience for people with code. That That's valuable. And it doesn't matter if you're a 1X engineer, if you have that idea. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So you talk a lot about women in tech in this book. There's a whole chapter dedicated to the ENIAC girls, mm-hmm. which is fascinating. And what I loved about the way you approach that topic is that I always assume there were one or two major reasons why there aren't many women in tech and why they're underrepresented. But you really broke it down and you show that there are kind of like a hundred. There are lots of variables, lots of things that came together and created this unfortunate storm Mm -hmm. that resulted in the low numbers we have today. But one of the interesting phenomenons that you talk about is the pink collar worker. That's right. Tell me a little more about that. Yeah. So this, this is a really, uh, 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 interesting thing that's happening right now. So you have this, you have this problem where like women are, are early pioneers in coding. Um, and then for, as you pointed a whole complex bunch of reasons, I'm not going to go into now, you can read the book. Um, uh, they're, they're driven out. Um, one of the reasons why it's actually hard to talk about and understand and fix is because it's not just one thing. And so you have to move on five or six fronts, but you know, there has been in recent years, you know, uh, a couple of areas of software engineering that have had a lot more women involved, um, partly because the doors have opened. Front front end uh, engineering, you know, um, J- JavaScript, HTML, CSS, you know, has a much higher representation of women. Partly because you know it was something that you could sort of you could sort of you know brute force your way in if you like started doing websites for people and you began to like get really good at JavaScript. Um, you didn't need to have the big CS degree. And so the door was sort of more open. And also there's just, frankly, this crying need for a lot of warm seats to do that work. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that's great. There's way more women involved there, way more other, other underrepresented groups. Uh, but when you actually look at the pay, what starts to, ha- starts to happen is more women flood into that area, the pay softens, mm-hmm. right? So you know, certain areas become new high-yield areas where the priestly, priestly class goes off to, like blockchain or AI, and front-end design, you know, the pay doesn't, doesn't match. Um, and so this is what uh, uh, several thinkers um, who I talked to for the book said, this is sort of almost like a pink-collar ghetto, right, mm-hmm. in coding. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it becomes an interesting challenge. You can open the doors, but there's still, still a lot of pre-existing problems in society overall over the way that um, women's work is valued that extend outside of the world of coding that mm-hmm. infect it. Yeah, absolutely. And you you also talk about the blue collar worker as well, which is kind of related, a little bit different. Right. This one relates more to like boot camps and that phenomenon. Yeah, Tell that's us about right. that. Yeah. Right. So one of the, one of the the other thing that's happening in in software right now that's quite interesting is um, you know, there you know there's these different waves of the reasons why people decide that they want to get into this. Um, you know, forty years ago, it was people who were just sort of germanely interested in hacking. Uh, As a few of them said to me, you know, who are now in their 50s, when I did this, when I was a teenager in the 80s, you know, I had no idea this would have any financial value. It seemed as useful as like arts criticism or something like that or, you know, uh, um, and no offense. offense. (laughs) My my, my wife is, in fact, actually an arts critic. Uh, um, But uh, um, uh, so so, so they they sort of stumbled into making a lot of money, Um, you know, 10 or 15 years later, it became clear that in the 90s and early aughts that there was like millions of dollars at hand here. So you had a lot of a lot of kids flooding in going, wow, this is how I'm going to make my million dollars. The thing that's really interesting in like maybe the last five years post the um, 2008 financial meltdown is that it's become clear that there's a certain chunk of people that are that are interested in getting into coding because it's almost like it's just a middle class 
living, right? Mm-hmm. Like they, they don't want to get rich. They just want a stable job uh, that will pay well, that's intellectually interesting, uh, that is less precarious than the crazy service sector economy loaded down with student debt that confronts them. Now, this is really interesting because this is, this, this is like coding becoming something that's more like working on a Chrysler uh, line in, in, in the 70s, like a very, very skilled, high-paying work. And there's very different motivations. Um, also, because you know the number of jobs there that are necessary, that, that are open, the computer science schools can't satisfy that demand. There needs to be different ways to get in. And that's why things like boot camps have started to emerge uh, because they're trying to satisfy that demand to give people just enough skills that they can get in a junior job and move on. And of course, it's kind of a dodgy thing because these are com- like, unlike universities, these boot camps are completely unregulated. Uh, the good ones are amazing. The bad ones are just fly-by-night operations that take your money and leave you with nothing. Um, and it feels like an area that perhaps state and local governments should take a closer look at mm-hmm. because they could they could get a little more involved in um, uh, incentivizing the good actors uh, and expanding the opportunities. Um, because it, 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 when it works well, it's it's a viable route. You yourself know, right? You went mm-hmm. to you went to a boot camp, right? yeah. exactly. That's how you got in, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's this very interesting quote from Jacob Kaplan Moss, who's a pretty big deal in the Python community. And he says in your book, programming is something you are, not something that you do. Right. Well, well, to be to be fair, he was actually he was saying that with concern. He was saying Mm -hmm. this is the view that he finds that he worries about the idea that um, that. Uh, so, uh, th- that you're only a real coder uh, if you sort of have this personality. You know, it, it is something that you, it, it, is, it is sort of a, a, like a persona that you have. It's not just an act, like an activity that you do. Mm-hmm. And the story here, uh, when he came to, when he said that, it's in a fascinating essay. It's online. You could, you could hunt it down and read it. He was at a conference and he, uh, there was a woman, a young woman who got up and talked about a project she'd done where she um, had to create her own um, her own system for logging a bunch of GIS data and parsing it uh, and doing data viz on it. So, like, this is a complicated project. Like, she'd worked with, like, you know, three or four different languages and frameworks and put this thing together to accomplish this task. She was presenting on it, and she concluded by saying, you know, like, you know, I hope you enjoy this. He talks to her afterwards and says, you know, would you like to be interviewed at my company? Because this is, like, remarkable work you've done. We could use developers like you. And she said, well, I'm not a... I'm not a software developer. You know, mm-hmm. Like I, I just sort of did this thing, and he talked to her and realized, you know, she had she had internalized this idea that comes off the industry that, like, you know, you know, a coder is, you know, this shoegazer, uh, you know, arrogant, uh, mostly young male nerd, right? And if you don't match that type, you're not really a real coder, mm-hmm. you know. If you're not, and if you, and there's all this bellicose chest beating about the type of languages you should be doing if you're a real coder, and this goes back decades, right? Uh, um, you know, like uh, Ed, I'm, I'm going to mangle. I've never pronounced Edward G- Jigrisca. Okay, someone pronounce that for me. His last name, Edward Jigrisca. What's his last? G- Jigstra, there we go. Okay, so he wrote this essay uh, about how uh, you know basic and COBOL cripple the mind, right? You know, and these are the languages written for newbies, right? And uh, so he was, you know, doing his thing, saying, you know, that's not real coding. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, these languages that, are, that were designed to let everyday people do coding—that's not real coding. So this idea goes back very far. Uh, I think it's completely hazardous, and it chases people chases people out of the field. Yeah, and what's interesting is. In so much of the book, there's this theme of underdogs, right? There's the women in tech who were part of the pink-collar ghetto. There are the blue-collar workers who 
might be doing the quote unquote easier technology and kind of not doing the blockchain, the AI, the harder stuff. Mm -hmm. And there are the one Xers that we talked about of folks who aren't necessarily the superstars. Mm -hmm. So when you think about these underdogs, where do they fit into the future of coding? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, Frankly, they would fit in absolutely fine if the if the if the industry and the people that hire had a more expansive view of of uh, of of where talent comes from. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things to me that is so interesting about looking back at the origins of coding, like nineteen late nineteen late nineteen fifties, early nineteen sixties, is that it was like wildly meritocratic, right? Like because there was no preconceived notion of who a coder was. In fact, you couldn't even study it. There wasn't any degrees, right? You know, there, there were, they didn't start doing computer science degrees until the late 60s. Um, anyone who just sort of could say, hey, I want to do this, and could prove that they were pretty good at, um, you know, at sort of uh, um, logical thinking could get a job. There's this story in, in the second chapter of my book, wonderful story, Mary Ellen Wilkies. Uh, she went to a college thinking that she would be a trial lawyer in the late 50s. And everyone told her, there's no chance of this happening. It, you know, they don't, they don't make women trial lawyers. And so eventually she decided, okay, I can't do my dream. So what should my fallback plan be? And she thought software, uh, um, because, you know, uh, back then uh, there was really no sense that you couldn't do it. So on the day she graduates, she has her parents drive her from the graduation ceremony to MIT. Uh, and she walks I like her. Yeah. She, she's great. Yeah. She walks into the, the hiring office and says, so do you need, do you need software programmers? And they said, yeah, yeah, we do. Um, and so they went and they gave her an interview and they did some logic tests and she was a great logical thinker. She studied philosophy uh, and they hired her and she became this absolute titan of, of early development. She wrote the operating system for the Link, one of the first ever personal computers. Uh, she was enormously in demand. Um, she eventually went off and, and in the 70s became a trial lawyer, finally, uh, <laughs> when, when, when the field had sort of eased up enough. But think about that. Think about that. It's 1960. This is like the Mad Men period. Uh, and software is such an open door and so interested in just identifying merit that, that MIT will take, take a young girl who's just graduated and said, let me do this. Um, so to me, that's actually the spirit that the industry should be embracing mm-hmm. today, you know? And, and when they do, it works incredibly well. Um, uh, one of these companies, Catalyte, that I found there in uh, Baltimore, uh, they decided kind of to return to exactly that that sheer merit reward. They set up their own system for testing people for aptitude and they put ads in, in local newspapers uh, and said, do you think you want to do software? And, and, and they're, they would have them do this test with the promise that if you scored highly on it, they would offer you a training uh, period. And if you completed it, they would guarantee you a job. So now, years later, they have 600 developers. Uh, I think it's about 39% African-American, 45% uh, uh, women. Uh, these are numbers that are insanely unheard of, unheard of yeah. in the rest of the industry. And they're doing work for Coca-Cola and redesigning the, the front end for Grubhub and stuff like that. Uh, because it turns out that if you just ask people if they want to do it and they, and they prove they have the will and the aptitude, they're going to be great at it. Mm-hmm. That is what the industry needs to move towards. So I want to talk about the business side of things. There is a tech firm founder who said, if you aren't aiming to be giant, why bother doing it? 
which is which is a little uh, pessimistic, a little cynical, maybe. Yeah. But it's interesting because we hear about these big tech companies, the Googles, the Facebooks of the world, the Amazons of the world, mm-hmm. and it feels like they're kind of eating up the little guys and eating up the these tech companies that um, maybe could be like middle sized, right? They could be mid sized yep, companies. Yep, they yep. could stay small, and that's fine too. Mm-hmm. But where do you see the future of it? Is there room for the little guys to stay? What does the ecosystem yeah, of yeah. tech companies look like? I mean, I, I do worry about that. Um, I, I heard this from a lot of people uh, that were uh, involved in different, you know, parts of the stack. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, that um, you know, if, if you've if you've got a if you've got a niche you're doing and it's and it's outside the ambit of the big tech giants, you know, you can probably continue what you're doing forever and it'll be great. Um, but if you're doing anything that bumps up against what one of these large tech companies like Apple uh, or Google or Facebook uh, or Microsoft is doing, you know, they'll sort of just reach out and phagocytose you uh, 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 with 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 a with a you know mountains of money. Um, and uh, <laughs> That's what I like to do on a Friday night. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and so um, one of the concerns is what's that doing to the competitive landscape? Like, could there ever actually be a competitor mm-hmm. to these large companies? Um, one of the concern, one of the, one of the lines of thought amongst you know thinkers like. Susan Crawford or Tim Wu is that maybe, you know, we're moving into a period where we need to take antitrust enforcement mm. a little more seriously. You know, no one really knows what that would look like. Is it is it breaking up a big company? Is it requiring that a large company give access to some of its uh, data such that other smaller companies can compete by having access to it? No one really knows what it looks like. But it does worry me because I think that, like, you know, there's this concern that, among my mind, that you could have actually a stagnation uh, of inventiveness because it's too hard to do something that could that could grow to compete with these mm-hmm. giants, basically. So, what happens if we are unable to compete? What does that mean for our future? What does that look like? Well, you know, you know, it it uh, it, it, it doesn't presage good things, right? Uh, um, because whenever you have, you know, we know this from the lessons of history from the from other industries. Um, you know, uh, ranging from transportation to mining to telecommunications, that you have, if you have an important area of the economy of the civic realm that's dominated by a few players, uh, they have outside power, and you're sort of left to do all this special pleading to get them to change their ways, um, and that doesn't always work very well. Um, wh- you know, one of the uh, one of the one of the, I suppose one of the rays of of hope I, or green shoots that I've seen that emerged just as I was writing this book. Was that um, uh, and and this is not by any means sort of a solution to the the, the problems of size, but um, a, a lot of you know grassroots employees have in the last two years started um, you know rising up at some of these large tech giants and saying you know we're not happy with some of the ethical and moral implications of what this company is doing, mm-hmm. you know. So at Google, uh, you had you know uh, you know an uprising against the idea that they were going to be doing AI for the military. You also had a big uprising about the fact that they gave a $90 million golden parachute to someone that was being let go for sexual harassment. Mm-hmm. Um, and that ranged from, from uh, you know, petitions to people quitting to, like, thousands of people walking out around the entire um, planet. At Microsoft, you had petitions uh, saying, you know, we are not happy that our productivity software is helping make ICE more productive at deporting migrants, right? Uh this is really interesting and kind of new. Like, this is not something that was happening at, at these tech companies 5, 10, 15 years ago. And I think it's because the generation of developers and tech people that are working for them uh, are coming in understanding 
um, that these companies have an enormous impact on the economy and on the civic realm. You know, uh, when I mentioned that that guy earlier, you know, who's in his forties at Uber, who said, you know, I thought I didn't, I never imagined software would become so valuable. Um, you know, if you're 25 and you're working for these tech companies, you don't have that illusion. You grew up knowing that this stuff was incredibly powerful because it was it was what powered your socializing when you were a teenager. It's what powered potentially your gig economy jobs. Uh, and so I'm actually kind of heartened by that. It's mm-hmm. kind of cool to see um, a bunch of people, uh, the worker bees, the people that are moving the bits around, um, begin to exercise some of their agency inside the companies. Why did those issues become issues when they did? Because I'm sure that's not the first government contract that was controversial. Yeah, it's not the yeah. first ICE contract that's happened, mm-hmm. right? So was there something about the timing of that mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. you found was interesting or unique? I think it's probably, I think it's probably because uh, of the discussion about the, um, the concern of what social media did during the 2016 election. You know, um, That was catalytic. Uh, uh, that was a moment when a lot of people began inside the industry began to say, wow, this is freaky. I mean, there's these funny stories that like if you it, 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 people would tell me you go to a party now uh, in Silicon Valley and the Facebook people show up and you ask them, so where do you work? And they're like, oh, you know, in software, uh, um, uh, you know, <laughs> what company, you know, uh, uh, we we do stuff. Uh, um, <laughs> you know, like ten years ago, they would they would have you know been like had the t shirt on, you know, uh, it, um, yeah. and now they're just sort of you know keeping the hat down low and you know drinking their beer in the corner. Um, so uh, so so I think I think uh, it, what sort of happened after after the election was this kind of moral shock to the system mm-hmm. um, that uh, that may that may play part of what's going on because as you point out, like you know, you know certainly with military contracts, I mean technology down to the microchip was based on, you know, boatloads of military money. Uh, um, that's not a new thing. Uh, what is new is um, is a concern about the ethical implications of it. Mm-hmm. So a lot of those issues have to do with privacy, and you have an entire chapter dedicated to privacy alone. Right. Right. And you talk about these pro-privacy hackers who mm-hmm. feel very strongly that consumer privacy needs to be more of a priority and that the government needs to be more transparent. Right. And you set up these uh, – or you go through these battles between these hackers and government, these hackers yeah, yeah, yeah. and the music industry, these hackers and the entertainment industry. Mm-hmm. Where do those battles uh, – where did that leave the little guys, the, the average coders, the average consumers? Yeah. Well, the average consumers, I mean, in, in one sense, are sort of just hapless, uh, um, you know, standbys in this, right? Because, you know, really this, what, you, what you're talking about here, and this is my, in one sense, this is my favorite chapter to write because it was, you know, all about these, um, these very civically minded, you know, coders who are like often, you know, you know uh, working for free uh, or working with nonprofit organizations to try and create, you know, crypto to improve privacy, to improve autonomy. So, you know, it, it, it was, it was was the one chapter where I'm like, oh my God, I'm actually really enjoying this a lot, you know, as opposed to some of the other chapters where it's like, oh, this is kind of a slog. Um, uh, so, so in one sense, it was nice, but it, it does, you're right, there's sort of a lack of agency for the average person. You know, it feels like, you know, if someone is, is concerned about uh, privacy online, if they're concerned about how their data is being used, they're concerned about how they're being tracked. Uh, they don't really have a lot of options other than what, you know, massive tech companies are offering them, mm-hmm. which is, you know, essentially surveillance capitalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the sort of attempts by these pro, pro-privacy hackers to create tools that, that you know, pull back a little bit of control, you know, um, uh, you know, with some success, you know, Signal, for example, has grown mm-hmm. dramatically in usage. Um, those are fantastic hackers. They've done amazing work. Um, that, uh, but but uh, I think in one respect, 
probably what's left for the rest of us, um, is for it to become a bit more of a political issue, right? Uh, I was kind of fascinated to see that Beto O'Rourke was a member of the Cult of the Dead Cow, um, you know, writing essays about the end of of money and whatnot, because I'm like, that's really interesting, you know? Um, I would personally like to see these issues uh, around, around data, around the enormous you know, social control of these large companies become much more something that's talked about, you know, as a political issue. Uh, It isn't right now. You know, you really don't find, like, you look at all the arguments that are being posed towards potential, you know, uh, uh, democratic challengers for the presidency, and, you know, there's a lot of good, important stuff there, but you don't see these issues talked about very much. Um, And that, and, you know, it is the one lever that, that, the people have against enormous corporations is the leviathan of government, right? You know, it's one of the few large, uh, um, one of the few forces that can, that can um, go toe to toe with enormous corporate interests. So, you know, not the most satisfying answer to that question. Um, but that is one of the few levers the everyday, the everyday people have is mm-hmm. to turn it into a real political issue. Mm-hmm. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now, back to our program. One of the more complex topics that you tackle in this book is AI, AI and big data Mm -hmm. and how AI can really help us do lots of fun things like translate in real time. It can help us, you know, identify things in photos, but it can also really affect our lives in positive or negative ways, like Mm. showing us specific job postings um, and making courtroom decisions, which is a little, a little scary, a little terrifying. Um, There's this quote from Kathy O'Neill that I, that like frankly haunted me. It says, "Big data processes codify the past; they do not invent the future." Right, exactly. Th- this so this is this is something that's actually existentially uh, um, striking and alarming about the way that a lot of um, machine learning is being used these days. Which is to say, you know, machine learning and and, and neural net, you know, machine learning in particular is kind of a, a it's a weird form of software. It kind of unsettles a lot of coders I talk to because they're accustomed to like building these these watchwork systems that are that are deterministic that do what they you know what they intend to you know but when you're training a neural net it's like training a puppy not to pee on the carpet right like you know you sort of smack it when it pees and then you reward it when it doesn't pee and at the end of it you've got like a neural net that's doing what you want it to do right you know in this case my husband there we go uh and so you show it like a million cat photos and you're and 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 then when it gets it right you know you um you know you back propagate you know uh uh, and uh, when it gets when it gets uh it wrong you back propagate and eventually you have a neural net that can recognize cats but you don't necessarily know how it's doing, what it's doing. So you have a bit of a black box. But also, you know, if it's doing a recognition that's based on historical data, it cannot deviate or make moral judgments about that. So one of the examples you mentioned um, about offering jobs came from an example, uh, it's mentioned in the book, where they trained, um, they they were interested in classifying job offers uh, and matching job offers to candidates. So they, they trained it on all this existing data 
And what it started doing was uh, recommending uh, much higher wage jobs to men and much lower wage jobs to women, because that is the record of the past, right? If you look at the record of the past, women are paid less than men for the same jobs. If you train a classifier on historical data, all it's going to do is replicate the errors of the past, right? So that's actually, when you, when you phrase it that way, that's actually kind of existentially horrifying, right? You know, to be using software that reifies our past errors, that reifies our past biases. Um, and of course, you know, you see it anytime someone trains visual recognition on a whole bunch of white folks and they wind up with what Google fl- ran into where they have a classifier that labeled um, a black developer and his friend in Brooklyn, Gorilla. Um, the reverse thing happens, by the way, in China, you know, they train classifiers on tons of Asian faces and it literally can't recognize white faces, right? You know, so whatever bias you put into it will come out the other end if you don't carefully correct for that. And the industry is not great at thinking about, you know, those problems of the complexity of data, how to get it, how to clean. Data scientists are good at that, I would Mm -hmm. say. Um, But, you know, product companies are not. So a lot of this technology is already out there. It's already infiltrated so much of our society. If we see these issues and these patterns that we're not happy with, is there anything we can actually do about it or are we too late? (laughs) Um, Are we too late? In some cases, um, it is about mitigation, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you take a look at something like Facebook's newsfeed. Uh, and what they've done over years is carefully torque this algorithm uh, so that it, um, it tries to find things that are engaging. Well, what tends, to about, what tends to be engaging are things that are, have extreme emotionality, right? They make you laugh uproariously. They make you angry. Uh, they make you, you know, pissed off. Um, you know, and, and, you know, we probably could have seen that coming, but they're now at the point where it's, it's deeply entrenched in their business model. And so there's five or six things you would have to fix if you wanted to change that. I, you might want to think about that business model. You know, anytime you are trying to, um, you know, satisfy advertisers by getting them to, to get people to click on things all the time, you are going to run into these problems. Um, particularly if you don't have an existing moral or civic dispensation to your task at hand. I mean, we were talking about this in the green room a little bit. One of the funny things about, um, about the news industry where I work is that they've spent years wrestling with this problem of, um, you know, uh, how do you, how do you get people to look at stuff? Um, you know, you know, really a newspaper over the years would constantly be like, you know, they love, they love to just give you comics and sports sections, right? Because that would get you to buy a lot of newspapers and sell a lot of ads. But they have this idea that they also wanted to educate you. So, you know, they have this A section that you have to sort of fight through with news about Afghanistan so you can get to the comics, right? And they, and they set up this, this system where there was a publisher who was responsible for making the money and the editor that was responsible for figuring out the coverage. And they sometimes sort of hated each other, right? Because the editor is running stories about, you know, you know, why, uh, why, uh, um, you know, Toyota's latest car is a death trap and they're, and the publisher is trying to sell an ad to Toyota. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, they did it imperfectly. They did it badly a lot of the time, but they actually had thought through the civic and moral implications of the business model. Um, that, that did not happen with any of these companies, you know, could they adopt some of that orientation? Could they, could they sort of try to do that? You know, Sure, I think they absolutely could, but the leadership would have to want to do that, and there's no indi- indication that they that they will. Bloomberg had a story today, kind of an unsettling story, 
about how a lot of developers uh, lower down the food chain at YouTube were discovering that, wow, our, our algorithm is just kicking up a lot of conspiracy theories mm-hmm. all the time. They kept on bringing it to, to upper management and they just kept on saying, we don't care. You know, people are clicking on that stuff. Our goal is to get the, you know, one billion hours of, of viewing. Um, if that's your goal, if your sole goal is that one billion hours, then yeah, you're going to wind up with like, you know, the moon landing was fake. It's interesting because we talk a lot about how technology is shaping what we do, but you talk a lot about how technology can be a reflection of what we do. There's this really interesting quote that I found fascinating. It says, I'm not racist. This is a woman working in AI. Her name is Robin Spear. She says, I'm not racist, but what if racism is correct? Right, right. Uh, to be fair, that wasn't Robin herself. It wasn't. Okay. Uh, she, she was, um, she was uh, paraphrasing what people said to her. Mm. Um, she had actually done uh, uh, some – she was working on a classifier uh, that was trying to take like um, Yelp reviews. And, and uh, what she was finding, because she was using uh, you know, um, a sort of a, like, a, like a, uh, a lexical parser that came out of some Google work, that it was automatically classifying Mexican restaurants as being uh, worse off than uh, Italian ones or whatnot. Why? Well, because it had been trained on Google News, and Google News is filled with all sorts of um, overly sampled stories about you know in Mexicans being involved in crime and whatnot because they have racist editors assigning this coverage. And so it had, the classifier had learned racism, and it was saying that you know Mexican restaurants were somehow worse than other ones because the word itself Mexican was worse. So she presents this online, writes a good essay, and, you know, the denizens of, like, Hacker News uh, um, are like, well, you know, maybe that's just reality. You know, maybe, you know, like, maybe people really are racist, so our classifier should just, rec- you know, reflect that racism. And, and you know, and Robin was saying, well, that's not going to fly. You know, like, I have customers that are interested in, in getting a view of reality that's not inflected with the crazy racism filtered, distilled through tons of news stories. Um, it what what she was pointing to is that there are moral decisions in the way you make software, moral decisions in the way you weight your AI, and it is incumbent upon uh, developers to think about that stuff and not to wave it away. Developers, it seems like throughout the book, want to play this role of translator between the technology and the consumer, where their job is simply to bring the technology to its to reach its potential almost and they kind of want to get out of the way they're the interface the layer between the consumer and the technology itself how do you understand that relationship sorry repeat that one again i I, I don't think i quite got got the uh... sure so what i what i want to know is when you think about the role of developers they Mm -hmm. seem they want to be bystanders Mm -hmm. right they want to sit back and go well this is just the way to yeah Yeah. exactly give me the problem i'll solve the problem Mm -hmm. yeah yeah Mm -hmm. no i i i I, I agree. I mean, I think, I think to a certain extent, that is an extension of the engineering mindset, you know, historically, right? You know, um, all throughout, you know, the history of engineering, the goal was often, I have a problem here to solve. I have something I'm trying to make more efficient. I'm trying to, um, you know, remove grit and friction. And that goes back to, you know, uh, you know the steam engine and, and you, know, uh, you know, signals processing, right? Not. And, and so it, you know, when you're faced with just technical challenges, it can be very hard to look up at the larger view. Um, one thing that I found really, really interesting was this um, this paper that uh, I'm forgetting his name now, uh, a computer science professor sent to me. And he, he had been thinking a little bit about the comparison between 
uh, you know, software engineers and physicists. So physicists in the early 20th century really were just had their heads down solving interesting problems like how does the atomic world work? Uh, how does this stuff, you know, function? And they were just they were sort of so interested in cracking that nut that it wasn't until the atom bomb went off. They began to realize, oh, my God, there are huge stakes in what we've been doing for the last 30, 40 years. And they had this reckoning that went on for a decade or two that had some really interesting side effects on physics as a discipline, um, at least as his, as his author put it. He was, um, he'd been a physicist himself, and he'd noticed that, like, say, in the 1980s, when they were doing you know, divestment campaigns on campus, right? Like um, student, actors were, student activists were trying to get campuses to divest from South African companies during apartheid. And the student actress would go to all the different, you know, um, uh, all the different faculties and say, you know, hey, English department, hey, sociology department, you know, would you support our, our, our push? And none of them would, except for the physicists. The physicists would all sign on. And, and uh, he said it's because they had a moral reckoning and they began to realize that there are that they, that they have some obligations to society at large and they think about those things. And the conclusion, and maybe we can leave, we can leave things here and go to questions because we're getting near the time, is that he said, you know, software engineering has not had that type of a moral reckoning. It has not had a Hiroshima. It has not had a moment where they sat back and went, oh my goodness, look at the massive social impact. And so it's still too interesting to just get in and solve the problems. Mm-hmm. Um, now, obviously, you don't want to have something that big, um, but maybe that's what you need. I don't know. That is a great place to transition into audience questions. Absolutely. On that cheery note. On that cheery note. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think 2016 was a, was a part of that for sure. Um, okay, so this question reads, what role will groups like Code for America, Black Girls Code, etc. play in helping level the playing field in the future? I think they're um, incredibly important uh, at one part of that puzzle. And that puzzle is um, giving young people the opportunity to sort of get that hello world bolt of electricity when you realize, oh, my God, this is fun, right? You know, like this is genuinely fun. This gives you these uh, – um, uh, uh, I see in, 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 the, in the audience here uh, someone who's in my book, Dave Gorino. Uh, we were emailing and he, he said he defi- he'd realized he defined what software was and it's the pleasures of agency. Right. It's the pleasures of being able to make things happen. Um, And you can only decide that you want to devote your life to that if somewhere along the line you get the opportunity to feel that. So all those organizations are actually, I think, doing that with a lot of young people in a great way. Um, There's still a lot of other things that have to happen. You know, the way things are taught as computer science education has to change a little bit. Certainly hiring and the way that these companies visualize what a developer looks like has to change. Mm-hmm. But what these groups are doing is fantastic. Mm-hmm. What a question. Marshall McLuhan states that a generation's favorite games are extensions, reactions to social life. As the Minecraft generation now reaches the job plateau, how will the technically inclined among them shift this profile of the coder that you've outlined? Well, it's the same type of thing. I mean, like, so I wrote a big story about Minecraft a couple of years ago, and it was completely fascinating to do for a couple of reasons. One is that, like, that game has a huge blast radius, and I was finding it um, kids who are addicted to it in, in every demographic group uh, and every socioeconomic group. Like it was, you know, the, the wealthy kids of Montclair, New Jersey. Uh, it was kids showing up at the library in Harlem in low-income areas, and they were all super into it. And it reminded me uh, a little bit of kind of what I saw uh, in the scene of people, you know, 
coding in the Commodore 64 is back in the 80s, right? Like, it has a real inventive feel of, like, what crazy things can we do inside Minecraft? Because it's not just building blocks. Like, there's literally a coding language uh, built into it with this wiring that forces you to literally write, you know, and or XOR gates, you know, by hand uh, to make doors open and whatnot. So I would encounter these kids that were like, they were like literally the ENIAC programmers in the 50s. They were laying down wiring to make their logic, right? So that was incredibly fascinating. And um, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Ian Bagos, said, yeah, this, is, this, is, this isn't just a game. This is this generation's, you know, personal computer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's actually things like that that can have a bigger impact Sometimes even then education, right? Because that's, that's, that's this weird moment where you get, get again that, that hello world thing. And it's happening in this effortless way amongst all sorts of different uh, kids uh, in different groups. Um, I'm very heartened by it. Ian said, you know, it'll be a couple of years. He's kind of wondering what's going to happen when the first kids show up and he teaches computer science, uh, who sort of learns some of this thinking in Minecraft itself. Mm-hmm. You spoke about the social conscience of coders, especially young coders, to influence the behavior of large tech companies. Why do you also believe we need more regulation when it seems like the industry is trending towards self-regulated morality? Well, I'm Canadian, so I believe in regulation, right? You know, uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a strong believer in a free market that is just going gangbusters uh, with guardrails set up uh, by uh, intelligent, competent government. Competent being the, mean, uh, the, the, the main word there, right? You know, um, I, I frankly would like to see a much higher level of digital literacy amongst uh, our representatives. Um, uh, and I would like to see a much higher level of, of digital literacy amongst, um, you know, even the bureaucratic areas. Um, now, so, uh, you know, is, is there a role for more government, you know, in helping to solve some of the problems? There probably is. Again, I think particularly at the antitrust level, I think anytime you have massive actors that essentially have monopoly or monopsony power, uh, you need to start looking at that as a, uh, as a, as a, as a recourse. Um, do I know what that would look like? No, I don't, because I've asked a lot of people. I've said, you know, what would, what would antitrust enforcement look like? Um, there are not a lot of good answers yet. I think that conversation has just begun. It might take a couple of years. Um, but I do believe there's some role there. Mm-hmm. We talked about AI. So this question is excellent. Are privacy concerns about AI valid or exaggerated? Um, privacy concerns. Um, I mean, I, when, I, when I think about AI, I don't necessarily immediately turn to problems in privacy, uh, apart from the fact that obviously it can be a way to, um, you know, very efficiently and effectively um, sort through data to find out things that someone might otherwise prefer uh, hidden, right? There's, um, there's this sort of phrase known as retrospective surveillance, you know, where just you have a big bucket of data about what someone, you know, what someone's been doing online. And then, you know, if you suddenly take an interest in them, you just sort of you know, set your, uh, your, your search algorithms you know, to find, well, what can we find interesting with this person? This is exactly how the Soviet Union used to work, right? Like lots of files on people. Wow, Clyde's become troublesome. Let's see what's in his file, right? Um, so in the sense that AI is uh, uh, modern AI and machine learning is really good at finding connections. And if it's a nice black box uh, machine learning thing, it'll find things that no one can explain how the hell it found. Um, it's probably dangerous in that regard. You know, when you're talking about uh, about preserving privacy, you're talking about transparency, not to black boxes. That would be that would be the, the concern I see there. Mm-hmm. How concerned should we be about China surpassing us in the coming year? 
Oh, uh, very, very concerned. Uh, um, I mean, like you, you know, China has an extraordinary capacity for throwing resources at things. When I spoke a little while ago to Baidu, uh, I was asking, so how many people have you kind of got working on, you know, machine learning, you know, like or deep learning? It's like, oh, about 2000. Um, and that was just kind of in one chunk of one lab. Um, they are they're, they're, they are really good at doing industrial policy in a way that the U.S. is not. They are really good at devoting resources and finding areas and honing in on them. Um, they have a massive, massive market uh, in their own growing middle class that um, that is, you know, very lucrative to work towards. They have a government that has not a whit of care for civil rights um, and has actually pioneered a form of um, – of uh, surveillance and control of online uh, discourse that is uh, being, you know, excitedly copied by despots around the world. Um, so yes, I uh, I think actually China is a, a very very significant uh, concern because if they wind up becoming the big innovators in a lot of areas, they will be operating. Um, not remotely with some of the concerns. Uh, I mean, we talk about like you know companies like Facebook or Twitter being you know problematic for society. Um, that is not a whit on what, like, um, you know, a Chinese government approach uh, to, uh, to surveillance online is like. Mm. What do you think about the oncom- oncoming IPO craze in San Francisco, so things like Lyft, et cetera? <laughs> Will it change the city forever? Uh, forever is a hard thing to judge. Um, will it change things, you know, for the worse in the short term? Absolutely. I mean, it's going to crap you know, tons of more millionaires out on the street trying to buy houses, bidding it up, uh, and the city's not building anything at all. Um, I mean, it's an absolute mess. It's like, it's like ungovernable at this point in time. I'm from New York, which is a horrible place to live in in many ways, but at least they build housing, you know? Uh, um, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, it's like, uh, you know, like, like, uh, like a few blocks from my house, there's literally about, like, you know, probably like 1,500 units going up in condos in like a six-block area. Um, and they're not like low income, you know, uh, uh, you know, units by any mean, by any means, but, um, but they will at least relieve the, the pressure on the low income units further out because, you know, all the sort of, you know, uh, um, symbolic analysts want to live near the subway. So they're going to live in those places. They're not going to push further out. Um, yeah, it's going to be a problem forever. You know, not, uh, you know, in the long run, we're all dead as, uh, um, Keen said, <laughs> but, uh, um, in the short run we're alive and it's going to suck. We're having a lot of cheery conversations. Uh, yeah. Could, yeah. Could we get, could we get someone be like, you know, something, uh, some levity in it here? Yeah. <laughs> okay. This one I think is a little bit lighter. What do shows like Silicon Valley get right and get wrong when it comes to coders in Silicon Valley? I, you know, in a weird way, I think they did a pretty good job. They did a ways. really yeah. good job. Yeah. And a lot of developers, uh, uh, Can't uh, watch uh, it. when I was talking to them, they were like, this is, this is great. You know, like, like in, in, in often in like, they were, you know, they were really good at a couple things. So one is they were really good at capturing, um, the sort of uh, uh, the, the sort of zeal for optimizing stupid things, right? You know, uh, um, like there's that there's that scene at the I think it's the end of the first season when they're about to go to TechCrunch, and um, and and their compression algorithm is simply not working very well, and they. <laughs> It's kind of hard to talk about this scene in in in, in, in public company. Uh, uh, but, <laughs> or is it the best thing to talk yeah, about? Yeah, maybe. So 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 you know, they're the, the head, the public head of the company says, "I'm going to go out there and I'm going to um, do something intimate with all 400 you know people in the audience uh, to you know to get them to like us." And the other you know, there goes like, "Well, you know, 
is that even possible, you know? And so they immediately start trying to solve, uh, um, you know, for what's the optimum way for him to do this to all 400 people. Uh, and, you know, I swear to God, like, that, like, I've been in conversations that were like that, right? You know, I've watched people just go off the rail. You say, make some straight comment, and they're off to the races, trying to, like, literally figure out how to highly optimize and make efficient that system. Of course, in the middle of it, he, you know, he has an epiphany about how to change the software, goes into a room, puts his headphones on and starts hacking. And the other ones are eventually like, where is he? Uh, and they, you know, kick down the door. He doesn't notice because uh, he's with his headphones on. And they go, and they go, oh, my God, don't bother him. You know, like, and, and they put the, which is, which is yeah. exactly, again, they sort of captured the fact that when people are doing the work, you know, don't tap them on the damn shoulder, right? You know, when they're 12 hours in, you know, this is when the real work is happening. Um, so there's still a lot of little things like that. I think they did a really, really good job. I know a lot of coders who cannot watch Silicon Valley because it's just too real. Well, this is like Eddie Van Halen with um, This Is Spinal Tap. Uh, he like broke into tears like 10 minutes in and had to leave. Uh, he's like, I, I, can't, I can't. This is exactly what it was like being on tour with Van Halen. And it's, uh, it pierces <laughs> me to traumatic. my very root. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I want to challenge the Kathy O'Neill comment that big data process, processes codify the past. All the examples you discuss demonstrate the opposite. Oh. That because of big data, long-standing biases become evident and can be discussed and changed. Hmm. Interesting. Um, that's not untrue, assuming that the people uh, deploying the stuff have any sort of introspection at all. Um, they often don't. But I would make a defense, though, of machine learning as a, as a, as a counter uh, a counterforce to human biases, right? So, like you mentioned, um, sentencing software, you know, that tries to figure out, you know, what is someone's chance of recidivism and uh, to offer a score to the judge to help the judge figure out should we give this person a light or a heavy sentence. And on the one hand, that sounds kind of awful, right? Like. Um, you know, how could this how could this software be anything but unbiased? But if you did it right, um, it wouldn't be a bad thing to counteract the actual known biases of the human judges, right? So studies have found that if you go before a judge for sentencing just before lunch and they're hungry, you get a worse sentence, right? Like, and we know this. Like, this has been tested, right? I mean, humans are terrible, uh, uh, you know, filled with all sorts of unconscious biases, you know, uh, stupid activities. So if we could find a way to, you know, algorithmically, actually, uh, and in a reasonably fair way, offer um, additional data to, to help us guide our judgments, I mean, I'm all in favor of that. So I've got one more question, but there's a word that I am having trouble reading because of the handwriting. So this person can speak up. Um, thoughts, insights in the something word need for embedded ethical training in undergraduate computer science program. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, th this, this is a great this is a great point. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, so a friend of mine, Anil Dash, um, uh, he's the CEO of Glitch, a tech company, and he's been in um, social software for a long time. And he goes, you know, one of the problems is, you know, and he talks about himself, like he was involved in, you know, early blogging software and he watched all this stuff happen. And he realized, you know, part of the problem is he and, you know, every other, not so much he, but, but you know, other engineers he's, he sees coming out of these CS programs, you know, they're really, really good at data structures and algorithms, but they they really haven't had any, um, any training in the big picture of how society works. And so he's like, you know, th they should really have a little bit more of a breadth requirement here, right? You know, uh, um, the reverse could be true, actually. The people in humanity should probably, you know, it'd be fun if they had a bit of a taste of, you know, engineering to understand what it can do. Um, but the, um, 
But yeah, like a, a bunch of, not a bunch of, a small number of computer science faculty uh, and departments have started experimenting with the idea of, well, what if in addition to the data structures and algorithms, we had some courses on, you know, history, uh, sociology, society, psychology, that would be great, you know, because then you'd get people that are, you know, have the, the hardcore engineering skills that have been asked, you know, routinely to stop and think about the broader picture, the world that their, that their work is going to enter into and the effect they're going to have on society and frankly just how messy and weird people are right you know if you're going to ship any code that affects how people talk to each other how they do things um you're going to have a lot of weird unintended consequences because we humans are filled with unintended consequences Mm -hmm. so i'm all in favor of that so what's interesting about you writing this book is that you are not new to technology you're not new to coding you code yourself you've been a tech reporter for a long time what was the most surprising or interesting thing that you learned while writing this book? You know, in a weird way, the, the most surprising thing was people would ask me, like, all right, so, you know, what, is it, what does it take to be a, a good developer? And they'd often have this idea that you have to be very logical and systematic, and that's true. Um, and, and they would, you know, say, are you have to be really introverted? I'm like, well, no, not really. You know, like a lot of them are, but it's not a pre- prerequisite. Um, the one thing that came incredibly clear from talking to like 200 developers was um, that you had to be really, really good at enduring unbelievably brutal levels of frustration uh, because there was almost nothing more frustrating you can do with your life than try and tell a computer what to do. Because anytime you get the slightest thing wrong, it's like, nope, nope. You're stupid. You're wrong. I'm not doing what you say. Um, it's always right. It's yeah, exactly. And so, if Jeff Atwood has said, you know, the reason why we're all assholes is because we deal with an abusive colleague all day long. <laughs> you know, it's a, a computer, right? You know, uh, um, you know, you try dealing with this thing all day long and see, see you know, how you turn out, right? And so, um, I actually thought a that was funny and interesting. Um, B, I, I grew to really admire the, um, you know, the ability of all these developers just to just to pound nails into the floor of history with their forehead. Um, and uh, and I uh, and I also realized that maybe that's a message that should percolate outwards a little bit, which is that you know you know if you're interested in you know learning and doing this, um, you know it, it's you know uh, it's enormously rewarding. It has all those hello world delights and joys, um, but wow, it is going to it's going to test the fiber of your very soul, right? Uh, um, and so I, that was surprising um, and sort of uh, in, inspirational in a way. I, I found that I sort of grew to really admire that about developers, their, their enormous persistence in, in the face of failure. Do you think that more people should learn how to code? Uh, yes. I mean, not in that sense of like, I think everyone should do it because they might, um, you know, become a developer. Uh, I think that's not likely to happen at all. Um, Only a small subset of people will ever be really interested and devoted enough to make it their life's work. Um, But I actually think in a weird way, it's enormously useful uh, knowing a little bit of it because you can start to like, you know, automate and make more efficient and, and sort of all these little things you do with your life, like constantly check the status of your book on Amazon, right? Uh, um, uh, Over and over again, I would encounter these people who had just learned just enough Python to sort of, you know, take like five hours of scut work they used to have to do as a job as an accountant or a marketer and, you know, you know, automate it really quickly. And there was something, you know, pleasant about that, something fun about that. It made them more effective at what they do. It made them feel more empowered. So I'm a big fan of saying, yeah, learn a little bit of it, you know, Maybe you'll discover that this is something you want to do with your life. Maybe you'll just discover it's a fun thing to do in some corner uh, of your life the way I use it. How has writing the book and researching for the book affected your relationship with technology? You know, I think in some respects it, uh, um, 
it has, uh, uh, you know, made it more complex the way that anytime you learn something uh, about something, it, it, it makes you more um, uh, uh, aware of what's going on. I think in some respects, I had always known uh, that software is sort of amazing that it works at all. Like there's just, it's so ridden with bugs, you know, beginning to end uh, that you're kind of astonished uh, um, that, that the stuff works at all. That in some respects really came home the more I talked to developers, partly because the nature of development has changed. You know, 30 or 40 years ago, you were writing stuff right down to the metal. You know, like you need a web server, you better write one. You know, uh, you need an email server, you better write one. But now a lot of development is like layers and layers and layers of people using libraries on top of libraries and really not having the faintest idea what's going on in those stacks down there. And there's something sort of um, wonderful about that because people can be much more productive more quickly. Um, something a little terrifying about that because um, you realize that uh, the potential for things going wrong um, is sort of bigger and bigger. So every time I, you know, I, I sort of um, encounter software, I'm sort of literally wondering, wow, what, what demons lurk deep in, you know, beneath the weeds of this. Uh, um, And I'm sort of amazed when it works. Maybe it, maybe it's maybe more appreciative that that stuff works as well as it does. Mm -hmm. Our thanks to Clive Thompson, journalist and author of the new book, Coders, for joining us this evening. Thank you so much. We'd also like to remind our audience that copies of his book, Coders, are available for purchase, and he'll be happy to sign copies outside in the library in just a few minutes. I'm Saranya Barak, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned. Was this a meeting? That's right. <laughs> it was actually a meeting. This is a meeting. <laughs>